0: iabc ottawa presents the
1: voice the voice offers expert insights and practical takeaways for people in the marketing communications industry we're sharing the latest ideas and issues with sector professionals
2: what can we do to help you take your career to the next
1: level i'm tina barton and this is the voice My name is Donna
2: Papacosta of Trafalgar Communications, freelancing for almost 30 years. I love doing social media consulting, podcasting, and also teaching digital strategy at the University of Toronto. The competition for audience attention will only grow, I think, and this represents a challenge for all communicators.
0: My name is Martha Mazetschka. I'm the principal for Praxis Communications and Research. I've been an independent communicator for almost 10 years. I chose to go independent because I lost my job in 2005, and I had been intrigued for a while by the idea of being an independent consultant. And for me, it was the right time to seize the opportunity. I see the communications industry evolving across multiple channels, and this is an opportunity to tell stories across different platforms and in different ways.
1: Hello to all the listeners, and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Tina Barton. Now, in the previous episode in this Indie Communicators series, we discussed finding yourself, your unique value proposition, and finding your clients. Today, we build upon that by looking further into how to pitch prospects and formalize agreements. I'm joined by two very experienced independent communicators, or indies as I like to call them, Donna Peppa Costa, owner of Trafalgar Communications, based in Toronto, and Donna has her own podcast, you might be interested to know, and Martha Muzeczka, principal at Praxis Communications and Research, joining us from her home base in Newfoundland. Welcome to the show, ladies.
2: Hi, Tina. Thanks for inviting me.
1: Hi, Tina. Thank you. Well, thank you both for joining us. Let's begin by hearing briefly from each of you how long you've been independent, what you love about it, and even what you dislike about it.
2: Well, I was a senior systems analyst when my mother died suddenly when she was 52. So even though I had learned about mortality when I was about five, it sort of smacked me in the head and I realized I wasn't really happy working in IT or data processing as it was called then. So I went back to school to study journalism and started, while I was in school, freelancing for magazines. Uh, Eventually, I moved into corporate communications, then social media, and uh, now podcasting as well. And today, in addition to consulting, I teach digital strategy and social media part-time at the University of Toronto. So it's been almost 30 years since that happened. And uh, when I look back, what I love most about being an independent and what I've always loved is the freedom to take on projects that interest me. When I worked in a corporate environment, I didn't have that much choice over what I worked on. Uh, The other thing is the variety and the constant learning. So every day is different, which I really, really like. Maybe that's because I'm a Gemini. I don't know. But it's like opening this little gift every morning. Of course, there is the downside and, and everyone who's thinking of becoming an indie always talks about this. Well, what about when it's slow? What if you don't make any money? And of course, when those slow times come, you think no one will ever hire you again, and you're going to be on the street, you know, wearing a barrel and suspenders. But that doesn't really happen. And there is always another job. And, you know, over time, I did learn to relax when there was a a slower period and, and just go with it and use that time to work on other things. And then before you know it, you tell the universe that you need some some more assignments and they just pour in. So that's my experience.
1: That's great. There's definitely something very human about, um, you know, when, when life doesn't come easy, we always doubt ourselves. We're really quick to doubt ourselves and, you know, maybe start feeling like things aren't working out or it's time to give up. And I think the lesson is you've got to hang in there because life has its ups and downs. Right. Right. Martha, what about you? Well, I think the ups and downs
0: is really where I started. I lost my job in 2005. I had been a senior level communicator and there wasn't really anything out there at my level that appealed to me that offered the same challenges or even more challenges that I'd had in my previous position. I knew a number of people who were independents and I talked to them and I thought, you know, this is an opportunity for me. And 10 years ago was a good time. My son was starting kindergarten. I wanted the flexibility. I wanted the freedom of choice to choose different projects that appealed to me or could offer me some scope for personal and professional development. I have loved every moment of it. I find that the variety and the unique challenges each of my clients offers to me gives me that get up and go in the morning. What new thing am I going to learn today? What new approach? Can I apply and help solve the problem that the client has posed? What I'm not keen on, and Donna alluded to it, is yes, there are slow periods. But more than that, I don't like the paperwork. I really find paperwork challenging. I like the creative approach. I like developing. I don't even I mind the report writing as a way to wrap up the project. But the administrative component is not my favorite thing. And so I look for ways to minimize that to create efficient processes and look for ways that I can do the fun stuff because I really do enjoy the work that I do even when it's challenging or maybe a difficult situation there's always something that I can take away from it that I can apply in future to other clients and to other projects.
1: Great in the last episode we talked about how to establish yourself how to find clients who might be interested and We touched upon how to reel them in, but today we really want to discuss making it final. So what stands out in your mind as being your most successful pitch to a client and why? Who would like to take this one?
0: I'll start. My most successful pitch, and I got this directly from the client in terms of feedback, was that my proposal to them orally and then followed up in writing was clear, it was simple, And I applied in the document enough detail that they could clearly see what I was going to do for them and how we would work together. And I have tried to keep that focus of clarity, simplicity, and just enough detail to my conversations and to my uh, follow up documentation because it signals respect for the client's time. They don't want to wade through pages and pages. And if you are very simple and clear, then you don't leave any room for ambiguity.
1: I I like the sounds of that. And Donna, how
2: about you? Yeah, no, I I love what Martha said. And uh, I've been fortunate to put together a few successful pitches over the years. But the one that stands out best for me is a job that actually came about as a result of a Google search, which is quite unusual because most of what I do comes from referrals and word of mouth. But someone from Autodesk in California called me on the phone And uh, asked me about producing uh, a whole series of podcasts before, during, and after this big conference they were having in Las Vegas. And I think the pitch succeeded because even though we didn't know each other and they found me through search, as I said, that was unusual, uh, the details I presented and the samples I provided showed them I could successfully do this work for them. I think that it gave them confidence that I could do that because it was was a gamble for them. They had never done this kind of work before. They had never hired someone like me before. And uh, it worked out really well. And uh, for years, I used that particular proposal as a template for all my future podcasting proposals.
1: What kind of samples did you provide them?
2: Well, I had samples, audio samples of things I had produced. Uh, some things I could link to online. Other things were files that I had uh, on my server that I could, uh, you know, let, let them listen to. Uh, and that was helpful for them because now if I if I hadn't had those samples, if I hadn't already produced that type of thing, I think I would have just made some things. You know, I would have, uh, just like you might write up a sample article, I probably would have produced a sample show just to give them an idea of what I thought was possible for their conference.
1: Hmm, that's interesting. What advice do you have to offer people who have sized up a potential client and they want to approach them and they're not sure how, like what's the best way to, to start it
2: Well, I'm not sure I could answer that because I generally only pitch people who have asked for a proposal, although there have been a few times I've been approached by someone. I I mean, that I have approached someone usually as a result of a referral, but I much prefer working with someone who already knows they have a need that I can fulfill. I don't want to be selling myself, really. Mm
0: -hmm. But you have to judge where you are and what's appropriate. I mean, nobody wants to go to a networking event and be mauled by a whole bunch of would-be suppliers. So I'm very careful if people express an interest or identify an issue they're working on, I might ask a couple of, you know, non-intrusive questions, but designed to draw people out. And then if it's appropriate, I'll follow up with a pitch um, and suggest that we get together and chat more formally about what I can do to help them with their particular issue.
1: Okay, thanks. So the first step there is soft skills, engaging the room, and then if you see an opportunity to pursue it sounds like the second step is to have an in-person meeting Uh, would it be over coffee still keeping it casual at this point or I think it depends on people's
0: schedule. some people are quite busy and we may schedule a telephone conversation some people would welcome the chance to get out of their office so I do give people a couple of options Um, I also don't want to spend my whole day going from one coffee to another
1: no you'd be you'd be really wired
0: That's not very productive, Um, but I do let people know that I'm open to a face-to-face or a telephone conversation, and uh, then we can move forward to a more formal. Usually, if the person already knows that they want to acquire my services, a telephone conversation will work quite well because then we're discussing what they want me to do, I ask them questions about the kinds of things that they're expecting so that I can develop a statement of work that we can then negotiate into a contract.
1: So the statement of work phase, I mean, that's when you're really, that's when you're setting the boundaries, I imagine, and checking in that the expectations are clear right from the start. Do do I have that correct? Yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, I always begin the statement of work by outlining what the client's problem to be solved is. And I think people like that. They like to see that I understand what their what their goal is, what they want to accomplish. And then I get into all the details about the actual scope, the timeframes, including how much time the client has for approvals, <laughs> uh, the numbers of revisions, uh, and the payment terms and things like that. And I usually end each uh, proposal or statement with a paragraph about the benefit benefits of working with me. And I'll include a link to my LinkedIn recommendations and things like that. And sometimes I will actually outline all the steps that would be taken that I would take to accomplish the uh, project. There are a few situations where I won't do that if there's not 100% trust there yet. And I sort of don't want to give away my secret sauce because there have been only a couple of times where that didn't work out well and people use my secret sauce to do the work in house, which really is not kosher. But uh, anyway, so but one of the things I want to add is that I what I really like to do instead of just emailing a proposal to someone is to walk them through it. So over the phone, we both look at or or in person, if we're the same city, look at the document together and walk through it and make sure that uh, they understand, and that there aren't any. There isn't anything that's not clear. I mean, like like Martha, I always go for clarity. But sometimes we think we're being clear when we're not. So this way, it's uh, there's no misunderstandings.
1: Yeah, and I think it also gives you a good opportunity to present your case. If they were confused about anything, or if they were wavering, it's um, going to give you a bit of a leg up to be there immediately to address any concerns and and promote yourself again. Yeah. Uh,
2: sometimes it's sometimes the scope of work gets signed off on, and that is a contract. And other times it's a separate document. Big companies often want you to have this 25-page contract, which is ridiculous. Um, when I do my own contract, it's about two pages, but some of the big guys want you to use theirs. So that's what you know, I just make sure I read through it.
0: <laughs> oh, absolutely. I think that the absolute number one thing that I would emphasize around the statement of work is that it protects you against scope creep. And so that you could go back. And I always include a line that said, should the client decide to add to the statement of work, a new work plan or a new quote for that particular work will be provided. um, And approval needs to be come to in order for payment and for the work to proceed. Otherwise, It becomes very easy to say, yeah, I'll do that anyway, particularly if you have a really nice client. But over time, if you did a comparison of what you started out with and what you ended up with without that protection, you end up losing money because you put in more time than what you had estimated in the first place.
1: And I don't doubt that that's a common mistake that's made probably early on by more inexperienced independent communicators. I find that we're in an interesting industry, the marketing communications business, and writing as well, because there are so many people who are creating content and sharing it for free, whether to build their networks or whether they've got a plan to monetize it down the track. You know, I don't know of many gardeners or builders who do their work for free. But I think that being in the industry that we're in, it creates this challenge sometimes. And I I heard that in the first episode of the series. So that's just something that we're up against.
0: I think the tendency to ask for Detail work plans. And I had that when I first started out from a couple of people, because right from the get go, one of my mentors had said, don't give away everything in the first place. What you want to be able to show is that you can do the work, you can provide an outline about how you're going to do the work, but not to go too deep into the specifics, because then you are working for free. And it is a risk that someone will take your idea and then do it in-house because it'll be cheaper, or to pass it on to a supplier who may have underbid you if it is a competitive process. Uh, So I tend not to uh, support writing a sample article for them. I have enough articles at this point that I can show the variety and the breadth of what I can provide. And then I can show if they have a detailed call for proposals, how I can do that work. But then I follow up if I'm a successful bidder with a detailed work plan that shows it all in detail. But when people ask for creatives or what your taglines might be or what kind of concept, ethically, I think that's a dicey road for the supplier to go down because there's no protection for you. A lot of people now are finding that the call for proposals will say that your proposal becomes their property. And I think that if you have a really good client and you can help them out in a pinch as a sign of goodwill because you both have invested in that relationship, Yeah, there's some stuff that I'll let go. You know, I might do a third edit and I won't charge them for it because it means that I've done the best work and the client is going to come out looking good. But generally speaking, I think it's really important for women to not give away the shop when they do their work.
1: I noticed that you just said "women." There is—is is it a mistake that women are more inclined to make? I think so
0: because I think we're brought up to be accommodating, and uh, I know that when I first started pitching, I found it kind of weird to be bold and to be saying to people, "Hire me." It was sort of like, "Well, my work should speak for itself," and. But you have to be out there and you have to not hide your light under a bushel. But I think that when it comes to scope creep or trying to be accommodating, there are times when that pattern of behavior that I was brought up in, uh, society does expect women to be more accommodating and to make things smooth and not rock the boat.
2: Yeah, I had a recent experience like that, Martha, where uh, I was asked to do some work, and I won't go into the details, but what they were asking me to do was basically a whole bunch of work before the project started, and and there was no compensation for the upfront work, and and I said, well, what's your budget for that? And they said, we don't have one. And I said, well, I wasn't comfortable with that and I'd have to pass. And they came back and said, well, we're really sorry we don't have the budget, but we really want to work with you in the future. And I thought, you know, I didn't damage that relationship by saying that. I, I think I would have been very unhappy if I would taken it on and done, you know, two weeks worth of work. For nothing. And I won't go into the details of, you know, some people say, well, it's goodwill, whatever. No, I don't. And I honestly don't think a man would have said, oh, sure, I'll do that for nothing. You know, I, <laughs> it just, uh, I think, I think women often undervalue the work that they do and are sometimes afraid. As Martha said, we're, we're trying to be too nice and you, you don't do yourself a service and you don't do our professional service by doing that.
1: No, I agree. And I'm glad it's coming out on the show here. think it's very important. So let's discuss other important elements and clauses that should be covered in contracts and agreements. We've touched upon revisions a few times. What's your rule of thumb for how many revisions you're willing to do per concept or per deliverable?
2: I usually say 2 or 3 depending on the project. The third is very minor. That's usually what happens. It's the first set that you may have any any major changes. That's what when they'll come out unless you have someone who doesn't really know what they want and that's a whole other can of worms. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, I guess that's that's what you're trying to address in the statement of work, right? Do you have any tips for people that are struggling with their clients to define exactly what it is that they need?
2: Yeah, I think sometimes you just have to have those conversations. What is it that you're trying to accomplish? Who is it that you're trying to reach? How will you know when you've succeeded at it? I had a conversation with a potential client like that today uh, because he was a bit fuzzy. And I thought, well, I, there's no way I could do a proposal for this guy until I know exactly what it is he's trying to accomplish. I think that
0: helping someone be clear then makes the statement of work. When they actually see it written out, that's where the rubber hits the road because then they see, oh, this is what I said to whoever it is that they're consulting with and you're turning back to them what they asked you to do. And if it's not meshing with their internal view of what they want, then that's where you clarify.
1: In a nutshell, let's hear the key elements that should be covered in the contract.
0: Well, for me, I have who the client is, what the reporting mechanism is, so that includes the approvals. Um, I include the payment schedule, and I also include privacy considerations and disposal of materials after. In the first couple of years... I tended to hang on to stuff and I did a big clear out a few years in and realized I need to keep all this stuff. So now one of the clauses I include is that I will keep things for 60 days and after that they'll either be returned to the client if I produced reports or materials or copies that are sensitive of one kind or another or I'll dispose of them in a proper manner with secure shredding. Um, And I'm pretty strong on the payment Uh, process as well i require people to pay on receipt a lot of organizations want to pay you they take 30 days to pay i always say to them i've already completed the work so you hanging on to it just pushes it out even more and how would you like to wait two months for your paycheck i will ask for a certain amount up front and give a payment schedule that shows a reasonable approach to that I also have now started thinking about adding a clause that says, if a project goes on for longer than six months, I will reconsider the rate. Um, I had a project that actually went over by a year, um, and I had started charging clients other a slightly higher rate because it was time for me to raise my rates. And because I had not included a clause that would cover that potential increase, um, I couldn't actually go back and renegotiate it.
2: I think Martha's covered it very well, and she's included a lot of things, I think, that new indies probably wouldn't think of, uh, such as the privacy and, and how long you keep things.
1: So here's the big question, pricing your proposal. How do you go about it? What are some ways to calculate the value of your work? Do you, do you gauge by anticipated hours of effort or the value of what you're offering, or do you try and balance the two? Well, I've
2: been doing this for so long that I, I usually have a very good idea of how much time a project will take, And but I don't want to penalize myself for working quickly and being efficient. So when, when I'm pricing, I do take into account how much time I think it will take, but also more important, I think, is the value of the project to the client. So I always quote by project, first of all, not by hourly rate, you know, especially if you've had discussions with the client, if it's a, a marketing communications project, you might even know Uh, How much each new client is worth to them. So if you help them to get so many leads, you get an idea of what that what that's worth. So uh, I think it's important because they have a need. You're helping to fill that need. And if you're doing good work for them, they're, they're willing to pay for it. That's why they're hiring you. They want a professional to do it.
1: Yeah, and I think that's something else that new indie communicators might not think about either, but trying to anticipate the flow-on value of the service that they're providing. I mean, that can be huge. That can also be really hard to calculate from the outset.
2: Yeah, I think a lot of it is is sort of a gut instinct. And uh, I mean, certainly the amount of time does come into consideration. But I mean, just think of someone, suppose, I mean, we're using the advertising example saying we're not advertisers, but imagine someone coming up with a great tagline for a new car. They go, well, it's only four words. I get paid $2 a word. I mean, that's absurd. Uh, you know, like that old expression of, well, how long did this, how long did that take you to do that? And you say 30 years, right? It didn't just take me 10 hours. It's the experience that I have or the experience that Martha has that allows her to do what she does so well. So, um, uh, you know you have to take that into account.
1: So what is your advice for people who are starting out? Um, and it's not to say that they don't have years of experience as communicators. they should definitely be drawing upon that. but maybe their gut instinct isn't as well honed as, as your gut is. Uh, do you have some some tips to offer people when it comes to gauging their value?
2: I know within IABC, some of our independent groups, like our professional independent communicators group here at IABC Toronto, uh, we sometimes every few years do a survey of our members and we ask people what they charge. So uh, within Toronto, there's also other associations of writers that publish suggested rates. So it at least gives you an idea, but don't be afraid to ask someone. We, you know, Within our Indies group especially, we have uh, people who are starting off who will ask, you know, confidentially, how much would you charge for this? What's the ballpark for that? So don't be afraid to ask other people because it is hard in the beginning, for sure.
0: It is, and I think that point about value that Donna raises is something that I don't see people appreciate when they're looking for a consultant. I heard uh, from a couple of people who are also working independently and we were having an idle chat. And it's interesting because sometimes the client, the prospective client, treats people as if they all have the same level of experience. And they're somewhat surprised then that You know, Martha charges X and Donna charges Y and Susie charges whatever and Bill has this rate. And they're just saying, oh, well, you know, I can go to this store and buy X number of widgets for $10 a box. But if I go to this other store, you know, I have to pay $50 for this box of widgets. And yet they don't see that my box of widgets is made of, you know, better quality materials and has lots of expertise, et cetera, assigned to it. So it's a bit of a challenge because I do find that sometimes new people tend to underprice compared to what the market is. But also I think to me it's a reminder that we have to let people know that what you may get from me for my price Will be quite different from somebody else who's just starting out and who doesn't have that expertise and that practice and that education behind them.
1: Are there any common mistakes or must-do's that we haven't discussed so far this episode?
0: I think, you know, sometimes you go into a project and it seems very straightforward and you start asking questions and then stuff starts to emerge. And so I've come to ask people, are you anticipating any changes? When was the last time that you had significant staff turnover? And people sometimes say, oh, why do you want to know that? And I said, well, I'm just sort of interested in seeing along the way that we're doing this work. Are there other things happening in your organization that may change or have an effect on this particular project? So you do your research inside and out. And I think that clients appreciate then that you're trying to ensure that the project that you do for them will have the best possible outcome.
1: So we've covered quite a bit on the show today, and to close, to close it, I wanted to hear from both of you your single biggest piece of advice you can offer fellow indies surrounding the whole formalization of these contracts.
2: Um, I would say don't be afraid of stating your terms. Uh, for example, we've both talked about, uh, or Martha has, I think, mentioned asking for a percentage of the project fee up front. Uh, You don't apologize for doing that. You just say something like 30 percent of the project fee is due upon project contract signing or whatever. And and people will sometimes new new independents are afraid to ask for this. And I I always say to them that no one will question this. I mean, in the worst case, if someone balks at paying any money up front, it may be the type of client that you don't want to work with. Uh, Maybe they're not they don't plan to pay you at all. You know, there's a few bad apples out there. So uh, as I said, it's not begging. It's not apologizing. It's just saying that's the way it is. And uh, I've never had a problem with uh, with anyone balking at that. Anyone who is legitimate anyway. And don't be afraid to walk away. You
0: know, listen to your gut. I agree totally with Donna on that. And my best piece of advice I always give people is get a really good accountant because they do know all the ins and outs of what Canada Revenue Agency allows or not allows for small business or independent practitioners. And having a good accountant who can explain how for you to manage your cash flow or what kinds of deductions that you can make, um, how to register for HST and all that sort of stuff, it's really useful information.
1: And is this what you were referencing earlier when you said you've been finding ways to minimize your paperwork? Absolutely. I still do a large chunk of my own tax
0: prep and then pass it over to accountant. But I meet with her once a year to discuss any changes and uh, any new rules that I need to think about. Um, I've also started using more templates in terms of I have a contract template, I have a quotation template. Um, I have pre-formatted my invoices so that I have all the necessary information I just need to plug in.
2: Yeah, I agree. Systems and templates, very important. I, I save so many proposals. I mean, even ones going back years because there's information there that I can I can crib from and, and, uh, and use for for new work. So, yeah, for sure. And, and, and same with uh, contracts and invoices and all that.
1: Well, that wraps up this episode and this Indie Communicator series. At least for now. Thanks both of you for being great guests and for sharing with us so openly. Well, thank you for having us. You're very welcome. Thanks so much. Thank you to the listeners who have come with us on this journey as we explored the building blocks to becoming independent, how to position yourself and find clients, and how to prepare contracts, set fees you deserve, and manage clients' expectations. If you, the listeners, have any feedback on the show, including if you'd like another series, tell us at the IndieComs podcast hashtag or tweet me at Tina M. Barton. And if you like us, please rate The Voice on iTunes. It makes it easier for other people to find and enjoy our show. The Voice is produced here in Ottawa, Canada. A special thanks to Ashley McGrath from Thornley Fellis, an integrated communications agency, for producing this episode. Make sure to visit ottawa.iabc.com for more about the show and related resources. IABC Ottawa is the voice of Ottawa's marketing and communications industry, and I'm your host, Tina Barton. Thanks for tuning in, and join us again next time.